Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Kevin Patrick, the author of The Phantom Unmasked, America's First Superhero. Kevin, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure, Rebecca. Thanks for having me on the show. So I'm hoping you can start by talking a little bit about why you got interested in researching The Phantom and how you came sort of across this topic. Well, I have to say the origins of this project and my interest in the topic probably stems back to my childhood, actually. Um, little did I know, uh, when I first received my uh, first copy of the Phantom comic book as a kid growing up in Australia in the late 1970s, I think it was the second comic book I ever owned, um, it was just such a, a revelation to me. I, I still have the edition in, in my collection. It was a reprint of an old Phantom story from the late 1930s called The Diamond Hunters. And it was it was like watching a it was like reading a film noir on paper. Everything was steeped in dark shadows and muted greys, and it was so atmospheric and so sinister. And the and the, the character of the Phantom was so compelling, and the story, which was set in this you know dangerous jungle um, environment, uh, it just really tripped the switch in my you know year old brain at the time and um i think you know i've never really lost an abiding interest in the character since that moment my my interest in comics generally has waxed and waned over the years as has my interest in the phantom but um i think my my early fascination with the character i think it's also responsible for my you know abiding love of you know sort of analog era uh, mass culture, particularly, you know, sort of American films of the 30s and 40s, you know, black and white comics um, and comic strips. I, I think there was something about the aesthetics of, of comics, American comic strips from that era, which we were reading in Australia at that time, um, which I just found unde- undeniably compelling and attractive. So I think on that really emotional and visceral level, um, my interest in The Phantom dates back my first childhood exposure to the character. Um, in terms of how did I get interested in this as an academic topic of research, well, I come back to sort of graduate studies fairly late in life after a long career as a freelance journalist back in Australia, and uh, this seemed you know research about uh, comics, about mass, what I call mass market literature and popular culture, um, it was just seeming like a, a kind of natural extension to, you know, studying that formally seemed like a natural extension of my, you know, long-time interests in that area. And I was talking with my uh, to be uh, supervisor at Monash University, Dr. Simone Murray, and we batted around a few ideas about that. And I said, well, look, what about the Phantom? And I said, not just a, a kind of textual analysis of the Phantom, but I was really interested in about the, the publishing history of the Phantom because one of the things I'd learnt over time was that this American-born superhero actually had a far greater um, and more popular following outside of the United States, and particularly in the country of my birth, Australia, but also Sweden and India as well. And I said... I think this would be a really fascinating case study, not just about, you know, what I think is an unjustly overlooked and historically significant comic strip character, but also um, a way through which we can examine the kind of production and circulation and reception of American popular culture throughout the 20th century, because The Phantom has had a long publishing history in Australia, Sweden and India, dating back to the 1930s. And I think that gives us a chance to look at the kind of changes in popular print culture um, you know, over a long period of time, spanning you know four four different countries as well. So that to me was a, 
it was a happy union of both my childhood interest in the Phantom himself, but also my then burgeoning interest in the production and circulation and reception of popular print culture. Right. And so you start your book by sort of giving us a background of the Phantom, because I think many people don't know about the Phantom unless they're from Australia or Sweden or India. (laughs) Right. And so can you talk a little bit because the Phantom gets lost in when other superheroes come along, right? Um, Gets it's, it's lost in Batman and Superman and these other characters. So can you talk a little bit about that publication history that you start with um, in chapter one and how you sort of present him? And then you sort of move in in chapter two about the syndication of the Phantom and how um, the Phantom um, moves throughout the U.S. And, and it sort of helps him move beyond the U.S. So um, can you talk about the beginnings of the Phantom? Sure. The Phantom uh, was the second adventure serial comic strip created by author Lee Falk. Um, Lee Falk had risen to prominence in 1934 when he first wrote and created the adventure comic strip serial Mandrake the Magician, uh, which was circulated uh, through Hearthstone newspapers uh, via the Hearst a subsidiary company, King Features Syndicate. Now, Mandrake proved to be, you know, initially a very popular serial. Um, and, you know, obviously, King Features Syndicate wants to see if lightning can strike twice um, and were very receptive to the idea of a, a second comic strip from Lee Fork. Lee Fork uh, obliged with the creation of The Phantom, which um, first appeared in 1936 in the New York Journal newspaper um, and uh, it was initially illustrated by Ray Moore who would illustrate the comic for the first you know eight or so years of the strip's existence um, now the Phantom is, is a kind of the forerunner of the costume superhero but he's also I think an important transitional figure in the in this sort of American tradition of the you know, sort of uh, vigilante hero figure, um, the Phantom has a can- as a foot in the sort of hero pulp magazines of the 1930s, which predate him, things such as the Shadow, Doc Savage, the Spider, and, and others like that. So you're know, a mysterious figure who you know comes seemingly out of nowhere to fight crime. Um, the Phantom has very much, you know, that same sort of background that shares that same kind of dramatic uh, persona. Um, but I think what's interesting about the Phantom is he's the first kind of visual template, if you were, for what we come to know as the costume superhero. Uh, the very fact that this legend builds up around him that he is immortal, that he is known as the ghost who walk, man who cannot die, uh, suggests that he is immortal. So he kind of has this sort of fictitious superpower, as it were, um, but unbeknownst to many of his opponents, the Phantom is just the latest in the long line of a dynastic succession of crime fighters who inherit the mantle from father to son, which dates back several hundred years. That is in the scenario that Lee Fork gradually built in the first year of the comic strip's existence. Um, but he was the first, I guess, kind of costumed, masked, vigilante figure to appear in comic strips, uh, who really, I think, as I said, serves as a visual template for the comic superheroes that are to come in his wake. Um, and as the strip unfurled, as Lee Fork and Ray Moore built and embellished the whole mystique of the Phantom Legend, you know, in, in the opening years of the strip's existence, um, very much, uh, you know, borrowed a lot of the kind of tropes and sort of plot that we would typically identify with pulp magazines such as All Story and Argosy and Adventure Story magazine set in exotic jungle or desert settings. Um, he has a whirlwind romance with his longtime fiance Diana Palmer. So it's a kind of a, a mashup of, of both the pulp fiction magazine tradition and the, you know, uh, forthcoming comic book superhero tradition as well. And I, I think he's a pivotal figure for that reason, but he had been, he has been, I think, you know, eclipsed by uh, the modern comic book superhero, especially Superman, who just 
you know, um, sort of landed like a meteor, I think, you know, in sort of American public consciousness in 1938. Right. And what's interesting uh, in your book that what I appreciate and found interesting was how you sort of tied the history of comics and the history of comic strips to how the fandom sort of moved throughout the U.S., but then moved outside of the United States and into Europe and into Australia, into India. And so I'd like to get into some of um, that sort of selling the comic strips abroad and the women's magazines. But before you talk about that, I'm hoping you could talk about um, sort of that history of the comic strip as opposed to sort of the comic book. You talk about the comic strip. Can you talk a little bit about that history in the United States and how the Phantom played out in that? Sure. Uh, the Phantom, you know, was uh, a, you know, a relatively successful adventure serial comic strip. Uh, it was you know, widely circulated uh, throughout Hearst-owned newspapers uh, and via its subsidiary company, King Feature Syndicate. Now, King Feature Syndicate, uh, which was set up in 1915, was set up to basically sell all the non-news content that people would typically read in newspapers, and that would span anything from crossword puzzles to um, horoscopes to advice columns to instructional, you know, illustrated editorial pieces. And comic strips were a huge part of King uh, Feature Syndicate business as well. So having a feature syndicate subsidiary allowed Hearst to on-sell editorial content. It's not it's non-news editorial content uh, in both uh, papers within its own newspaper chain, but also to other newspapers across the United States, even if they weren't part of the Hearst Publishing Group as well. Um, and often, uh, because Hearst had access to, you know, quite sophisticated and advanced four-colour printing presses, they would actually package and assemble uh, Sunday uh, comic strip supplements for weekend newspapers across the United States. And these would appear under the generic heading of Puck the Comic Weekly, which was a, an old masthead which Hearst had bought uh, early in the 20th century, uh, was once formerly a humour magazine. He used the title of Puck um, as, as the uh, for his comic strip supplement, and these would be uh, overprinted with other newspapers' uh, mastheads as well. So they would have a ready-made newspaper comic strip supplement shipped, printed and shipped to them right across the country. So it was very much a kind of mass production, um, you know, almost assembly line operation, and that allowed the kind of feature syndicate business model allowed comic strips like The Phantom um, to reach a much wider audience than if it had just been fined solely to the pages of the New York Journal. I think the one thing that, that struck me reading about the history of feature syndication in the United States, and it's it's an undeveloped history. Um, there hasn't been a lot written about this particular aspect of the newspaper business. Um, but the one thing that really struck me was that uh, companies like the Feature Syndicate treated the United States not as a kind of unified national market, but as a kind of conglomeration of very distinct regional markets, and that they could... Um, you know, assemble comic strip supplements and other editorial features to print newspapers in different markets throughout the continental United States that would reflect, you know, the, the tastes and predilections of local newspaper owners and their uh, respective audiences as well. And I think building on that success and understanding how the, how the syndication business model could work most effectively in the United States gave Feature Syndicate the kind of experience and skills that they would need in order to export this business model to other foreign markets as well. Right. And so then you sort of talk about how they were able to connect with other syndicates and sell their work. So can you talk a little bit about then how it ends up abroad um, and so how they marketed abroad it, and then the role and around that also the role of these certain magazines, you talk about sort of the role of women's magazines and periodical magazines as a part of a way to that the phantom sort of not only gets abroad, but um, is 
is is in the hands of a wider audience. Sure. Uh, what King Features Syndicate would do is they wouldn't, uh, in most instances, set up a branch office in foreign countries. They would actually partner up with uh, equivalent firms in different countries. In Australia, for instance, there was a company called Yaffa Syndicate. Uh, in Sweden, it was Bulls Press. Uh, and in India, it turned out to be uh, the largest English newspaper language publisher there, the, the Times of India Group. Now, the reason why they would do that is because they would no doubt have to defer to uh, foreign business partners who had a better understanding of their local markets, of their domestic market. Uh, they would be able to advise King Feature Syndicate about what uh, pieces of editorial content, be it comic strips or any other content that the company offered, what would prove most successful, most likely to succeed in those markets. They would, um, where necessary, uh, be able to uh, provide translations of English language American comic strips so that, you know, they're equivalent, the, the equivalent translation makes sense to local audiences. There would also be issues of censorship as well. Um, sometimes feature syndicates in different countries might censor uh, dialogue or alter artwork of imported American comic strips if they felt it might offend sensibilities of local readers as well. So King Feature Syndicate would supply uh, the editorial content, say, you know, comic strips which would be shipped to foreign syndicates, um, you know, as, as what they would call bromide, uh, large sort of photostatted sheets, uh, which uh, feature syndicates would then reassemble and ship to their local newspaper clients as well for them to pick up and, and use in their own publications as well. Um, and the local feature syndicates, because they could exploit their own local knowledge of their domestic markets, would reach out to different newspaper groups in their respective countries as well and say, look, you know, these comic strips from America have proven to be huge uh, successes. They've, you know, demonstrably uh, improved circulations of many American newspapers. They are one of the most widely read and most regularly read features of American newspapers. You need to have these comic strips uh, in your publications uh, for your commercial benefit to attract more readers and ergo attract more advertising dollars as well. So there's very much a kind of economic imperative behind um, the, the success that drove the syndication and, and circulation of American comic strips in these foreign markets as well. And also America, um, just as it was, as it was becoming a, a focus point for global film production, was also becoming a global, global focus point for comic strip production as well. In countries such as Sweden, India and Australia, there wasn't the sort of depth and depth of uh, cartoonist talent, uh, and certainly the adventure serial comic strip of which The Phantom was one of the earliest exponents from the 1930s, that particular genre of comic strip really was almost unheard of in all three of those countries. So you know, companies like King Feature Syndicate, through their foreign affiliates, could say, well, look, we have these comic strips, we have a backlog of material that we can sell you at, you know, incredibly low prices. So they, they had a kind of creative and economic advantage over uh, local cartoonists and writers in those countries as well, which helped pave the way for their commercial success in places like Australia, India and Sweden. Mm -hmm. And so you have this sort of syndication going on, and then you talk about how World War II, you know, some of the regulations prior to but during World War II sort of impacted how comics were viewed or and that they had to be um, changed. Uh, I don't know if changed is the right word or adapted maybe to different to the foreign audience so can you talk a little bit about <clears throat> that role and how sort of during um at world war ii that exporting of comics sort of changed sure um just to sort of track and i think answer one of the previous questions you asked um 
when the thing about the phantom in particular, its success in countries like Australia, India, India and Sweden, the one common uh, and striking factor is that the Phantom was initially published in women's magazines in all three of those countries. Uh, in Australia, it was published in the Australian Woman's Mirror. In Sweden, it was in a magazine called Veco Revan, which is weekly review. And in India, it was published, it was first published in the early 1950s uh, in the Illustrated Weekly of India, which was like a, a photo journal magazine equivalent to say Life magazine or Look magazine in America. Now I think the significant thing about the Phantom comic strip being adopted by these ostensibly women's magazines uh, in those three countries is that these magazines weren't just read by women. Um, they were in many respects general interest publications which also had a significant um, male readership. It would not be uncommon for households in all three of those countries to take copies of those magazines and those that same edition of the magazine would be read by most members of the family uh, and they would be shared around because they were designed to have a kind of broad universal appeal even though they were um, ostensibly pitched towards women. Features like uh, the Phantom comic strip proved to be popular with a much wider audience. And I think having the Phantom in those magazines which had national circulations in a way that many newspapers uh, not have national circulations in those countries at that time in the 1930s, I think that was uh, crucial uh, in, in in the sort of broad dissemination of the Phantom comic strip because it reached a wide national readership in all three of those countries. Now, that, that model proved successful throughout the 1930s and 1940s, um, but, of course, World War II is, you know, a seismic disruption uh, to not just, you know, the geopolitical scene, obviously, but in terms of how the feature syndication business operated, um, you know, the physical transportation of, you know, comic strip material from America to foreign markets was jeopardised by the war. Um, many countries such as Australia and Sweden imposed uh, embargoes on imported, uh, non-essential imported products. Uh, to preserve their local currencies for the wartime economy. Um, so, you know, it put pressure on the King Features Syndicate business model. Um, but even even so, um, I think it's testimony to the kind of determination and business acumen of um, King Features foreign business partners that they were still able to, in some instances, even smuggle in um, publications of the Phantom comic strip and still have it appear under very straightened circumstances during the war. In Australia, the Phantom continued to appear almost uninterrupted uh, throughout the duration of the war. It continued to appear in the Australian Woman's Mirror magazine. The only effect the war had on its Australian appearance was that the uh, wartime paper rationing uh, meant that the Australian Women's Mirror had plans for an ongoing phantom comic magazine. They only published a handful of issues before the outbreak of war, but once uh, print rationing came into effect, they had to cancel that um, after the fifth issue, I believe. In Sweden, however, the situation was much more dramatic and, 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 and very different to the Australian experience. Um, Sweden, um, you know, was subject to the effects of a German naval blockade. Uh, Germany, Nazi Germany, was at that time its largest trading partner as well. Um, many of its Scandinavian markets, particularly Norway, were now occupied, had now been occupied and invaded by Nazi Germany. Uh, in Norway, the local, you know, Nazi sympathiser government um, banned the publication of any uh, American comic strips in local newspapers uh, after Germany had declared war on the United States. Uh, but the company in Sweden, Bulls Press, built, I guess, kind of ad hoc smuggling network, which allowed them to smuggle in um, copies of the original artwork into Norway, where the strip would appear 
written in Norwegian. It would be translated into Norwegian by its local newspaper clients and would, unbeknownst to the Nazi government there, um, appear unhindered throughout the war. So it was a kind of symbolic act of resistance to Nazi occupation and Nazi oppression. This is an American comic strip flying under the nose of the local right-wing government um, you know, in clear defiance on the embargo on American comic strip. So the war did have an impact on, on the, the business operations of King Feature Syndicate and its foreign clients. Um, it really didn't have a presence in India uh, until probably the early 19 until the early 1950s, I would imagine. But even then, American comic books were circulating throughout India, um, you know, largely to the presence of American troops who were, you know, fighting there in the sort of combined Burma-China-India theatre of war uh, throughout the mid-1940s. So, there, there is also a growing market of young Indian readers who would have this kind of ad hoc exposure to the idea of American comic books. These were unheard of publications in that country. And so that kind of, and I think, sowed the seeds for, you know, a, a vast um, burgeoning audience of young readers for American comic books, which only gathered steam in the 1950s and onwards in India. You also talk about after the war, right? So the war sort of sets this up, but you talk about um, sort of the controversy of the American comics and sort of debate on comics, which happened across, you know, in the United States, but also happened in these three countries and other countries, but these three countries that you focus on. So can you talk a little bit about then what happens in the late forties and the mid fifties before we get into you know, the, the culture of the sixties, what happens like post-war and how this impacts the phantom? Sure. Uh, after the war, um, King Features Syndicate, you know, was obviously keen to rebuild and expand its uh, foreign markets for sales of its comic strips, both to foreign newspapers and to foreign uh, comic magazine publishers. Uh, comic books in Australia, India and Sweden really didn't pick up as a, a sort of successful mass medium industry until you know, the late 1940s, uh, when you've got a new cohort of young readers who are hungry for escapist reading matter. Um, comic books, in a way, represent the first kind of visual pictorial literature aimed solely at children, which was accessible to them, not only physically, but also, you know, financially. You know, they would sell for, you know, pocket money prices. So this was a, a kind of new and exciting literature which children seized upon. It, you know, comics could be, you know, sort of treated as reading movies on paper in the same way that we would initially think of, you know, television as radio with pictures. So there was that kind of... Um, I guess, almost avant-garde excitement about the, the medium itself, which built to young readers, especially in Australia and New Zealand, uh, sorry, Australia and Sweden after the war. Um, and because, particularly in Australia, the physical importation of American periodicals and books was still banned and would remain uh, in place until about 1960. So what companies like Feature Syndicate would do is that they would get their foreign affiliates to court local comic book publishers and sell them the content for new comic magazines in, in Australia. Again, Yaffa Syndicate sold the comic book rights to the Phantom Comic Strip to a new company called Fru Publications in Sydney when they launched their first edition of The Phantom in 1948. They were no doubt confident that the comic would find an audience, given the fact that the comic strip was still appearing in the Australian Women's Mirror magazine. So they kind of had all this free publicity uh, through the, the character's exposure in a top-selling women's magazine. Um, so that... And, and the similar story played out in Sweden after the war as well. Uh, the first kind of yearly phantom, phantom comic annuals appeared in Sweden in 1944 and in 1950 um, a, a local publisher um, secured the publishing rights from Bulls Press for a phantom 
comic book in Sweden. And that proved to be a huge success as well, again, building on the character's exposure in the women's magazine, Echo Riven. Now, with the rise of the comic book, particularly in Australia and Sweden, it was an explosive um, debut of comics. Uh, they, they, in both those countries, they were selling, you know, top titles would sell hundreds of thousands of copies per issue. Um, the very fact that many of these new comics appearing in these countries were American comics, um, they were often considered quite shocking uh, because of their emphasis on physical violence um, and particularly some of the American, you know, crime uh, comic books which are being published in these countries and Western comic books, um, you know, the emphasis on violence and sexual titillation as well, uh, frankly, horrified um, many uh, elements within both Australian and Swedish society from educators who thought reading comics would debase children's um, interest in real literature to uh, religious and, and, and moral groups uh, who, who found the emphasis on violence and, and, uh, and the sexual content of the magazines to be objectionable, uh, and also um, from the intelligentsia within those two countries as well. There was a, a growing uh, concern about the, the kind of moral corruption of these American values, which they deemed to be foreign and alien to the cultures of Australia and Sweden. They, they saw comics as being a kind of um, in, importing what they considered to be alien values, which you know um, were at loggerheads with how these societies viewed themselves and how they wanted their children to, you know, grow and evolve as, you know, productive members of those societies as well. So there was a commensurate with the explosive popularity of these comic magazines in countries like Australia and Sweden, you also had this growing chorus of alarm, uh, which eventually translated into um Fits of industry self-regulation and self-censorship where, you know, uh, artwork would be altered or, um, you know, panels would be cut, might remove offending scenes of violence. You know, women's skimpy costumes and clothing might be uh, altered so that they were dressed more modestly. Um, blasphemous expressions like, oh, my God, or good Lord, would be painted out of um, dialogue balloons, that sort of thing. So you had this this kind of uh, contest of ideas um, about children and their role in society and how do we build a new post-war world. And American comics were, especially in Australia and Sweden, were seen as undermining this sort of post-war reconstruction project. You did have similar concerns being expressed in India as well, because uh, growing numbers of American comic books were actually being directly imported into India at that time, and um, the Indian parliament actually passed uh, laws which prohibited the publication and sale of comic books that would seem to be obscene or pornographic or excessively violent as well. So the story of the anti-comics crusade that we saw played out in the United States from the late 40s through to the early 50s was, to a large degree, mirrored in Australia, Sweden and India during that period as well. Right, and so then you you move into sort of, you, you talk about Sweden in Chapter 5, you sort of focus on Sweden because then there's this move in the 1960s, right? And 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 you talk about Phantomen and changing the Phantom to sort of meet the needs of Swedish culture and, and how the Phantom evolved. So can you talk a little bit about that evolution in Sweden and then how that impacted um, other countries as well and what that meant for the Phantom? For sure. The, the changes that were wrought about the, the Phantom character in Sweden, the Phantom was known in Sweden as Phantomen, um, were largely in response to, I guess, a kind of uh, aesthetic and, and by, by extension, economic changes to the original American comic strip. Just to give you some context, the first episodes of the Phantom comic strip that were translated into Swedish for the Swedish market, um, you know, for the for Phantom in magazines in the 1940s and 50s, were initially illustrated by an artist 
named Wilson McCoy. He was the second artist to work on the American comic strip version. Now, Wilson McCoy, in for the many Swedish readers really defined the look and feel of the Phantom. And and I think that's true also to a similar extent in Australia and India as well. However, when Wilson McCoy died um, in the early 1960s, uh, King Features Syndicate was presented with a bit of a problem because Wilson McCoy had been illustrating the strip for the best part of two decades. um, And they were concerned that Changing to a new artist uh, would perhaps be disconcerting to a lot of their newspaper clients and and to their their respective audiences as well. Now, the artist who succeeded Wilson McCoy, uh, Seymour, Cy Barry, Cy Barry is is how he's best known, um, was a very different artist to Wilson McCoy. He brought a much more modern, streamlined look to the strip. It was very dramatic, very dynamic, and made the Phantom look more like a conventional comic book superhero. Uh, But his style was quite a radical departure from the almost kind of simple, borderline primitive style of Wilson McCoy. And I think Cy Barry was told he had to downplay his style initially so that there was a a sort of smooth visual transition from when the Wilson McCoy stories ended and when Cy Barry took up the mantle, you know, and his story started appearing in American newspapers. Now, in Sweden, uh, the the publisher of the Phantom Phantomen comic book, um, with a company which would known eventually be known as Semic Press, uh, was concerned. You know what would happen um, now that Wilson McCoy had died. There would be no more new stories from him. And what they did, I think, was to actually commission, into commission, local Swedish artists to start drawing original Swedish. Um, conceived phantom and stories so that they could kind of act as a, a sort of um, they could the, the style would be not too dissimilar to Wilson McCoy's but would sort of prepare Swedish readers for the Cy Barry style so it was driven by a kind of concern about would Swedish readers you know violently reject new look phantom that was being produced by Cy Barry in America. So employing Swedish artists um, who could kind of provide that visual sort of transition and sort of ease Swedish readers and, you know, readers in other Scandinavian countries such as uh, Norway and Finland who are now in their own translations of Phantom and from the Swedish publisher, it could prepare audiences for this dramatic visual shift in the Swedish comic strip. The, the I guess the kind of unintended or unexpected consequence of that was that Swedish writers and authors were kind of almost Swedenizing the Phantom by stealth. Um, they would redraw a lot of the very early Ray Moore stories, which were rarely published in Sweden from the 1930s and 40s. They would redraw them and update them to a modern Swedish setting. So you would suddenly see characters, you know, reading Swedish newspapers or driving, you know, new model Volvos in, in the background of the, of, of the comic strip, uh, in, in the comic book stories. So there was a kind of cosmetic adaptation of the Phantom and strip that would kind of start to look like a Swedish story. Um, but as the 1960s progressed um, and they were, they were embarking on this I guess, program of adapting um, foreign-produced stories. They would not only adapt American-drawn stories, but they would also adapt and redraw some of the Italian-drawn stories which were being published in Italy um, at the time as well. What would eventually happen, though, is that you had this new cohort of Swedish comic fans um, who would uh, and aspiring comic writers who would suddenly you know refashion more explicitly refashion Phantom in uh, as a Swedish superhero and kind of do almost a sort of social democratic um, veneer like he became a much more you know quietly politicized hero who's more explicitly fighting on behalf of the underdog particularly of the oppressed people of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so a lot of the stories they would start to write 
about Phantomen, which was set in the, the character's you know, original uh, sub-Saharan African home, would would start reflecting, you know, real-world developments of um, post-war, uh, post-colonial struggles for independence in countries like Southern Rhodesia and South Africa as well. So there was a kind of uh, a politicisation of the character which would, I think, you know, reflect a, a broader social, a broader Swedish interest in the sort of uh, post-war, post-colonial politics of the developing world as well. So they they would start doing that. They would Swedenize, I guess, the Phantom. So he would be a much more um, identifiably Swedish character in, in, in terms of his essence, in terms of his outlook on the world. But what they would also do, and this is probably where even the bigger influence that Sweden has had on the character is that they reinvigorated a, a plot motif that Lee Fork introduced in the early 1950s called the Phantom Chronicle, um, where the exploits of the Phantom would be recorded by hand in these leather-bound chronicles uh, in the Phantom Skull Cave, and the present-day Phantom would often and consult the chronicles to see what his forefathers had done when confronted with you know, a particular dilemma that he was facing or you know, if he was encountering a new threat or, or the resurgence of an old threat that his forefathers had once dealt with. Now, what the Swedish authors did, they actually started actively building on this plot device that Lee Fork had devised but only used very sporadically. What they did, they would actually plunder the, the, the Phantom Chronicles and they would uh, do new stories starring the Phantom's uh, forefathers, but often they would sit in a in a kind of um, uh, more identifiably European and Swedish setting. So you would have uh, historical phantom adventures alternating with contemporary modern-day phantom adventures appearing in the Swedish edition of Phantomen as well. And I think the fact that they were able to successfully reinsert Phantomen into European history and they could, by going back in time, actually reposition the phantom as a kind of you know, quasi-Swedish, quasi-European swashbuckling figure um, really struck a chord uh, with Swedish and Scandinavian readers because they would, you know, have him inserted into, you know, pivotal moments in Swedish and Scandinavian history with historical, uh, interacting with recognisably historical figures. And that, I think, really energised uh, Swedish audiences to the point where they actively preferred the Swedish-drawn uh, phantom stories, whether they be set in the modern day or whether they be the historical ventures, adventures from the Phantom Chronicles. They much preferred the Swedish-drawn stories to uh, Lee Fork's uh, own story. And that sort of transition gets into sort of the next chapter when you talk about sort of the, uh, it's called One Hero, Many Masks, and you talk about the different ways that the Phantom has evolved, right? So in this time period, television becomes very popular. And so you look at sort of how the Phantom became a part of Australian popular culture and how it's sort of entrenched in Australian popular culture and other cultures, but sort of the different ways the Phantom appeared in different mediums. So could you talk a little bit about that sort of evolution of the Phantom then um, that you talk about in Chapter 6? I think about the time that, you know, these changes are happening in Sweden with the Phantom and comic book uh, ventures there, um, we've got this kind of explosion of interest in comic books, not as a mass medium as such, but as a kind of pop culture artifact as well. And, you know, th this is sort of... Uh, you know, riding the coattails of the whole pop art movement in America in the 1960s. But you see um, what I what I call kind of guerrilla uh, or clandestine image makers who appropriate um, the, the phantom in countries, particularly in Sweden and in Australia, and to a lesser extent in India as well. They appropriate the phantom as a means of commenting about the, the role and status of American popular culture in their societies. Um, but also it's a reflection, I think, of the unique cultural status 
that the Phantom came to enjoy in these three countries. Uh, the thing that struck me um, about the Phantom when I was originally researching this topic is that how many readers would identify with the character as a kind of homegrown hero. Um, I think one of the reasons why the Phantom has proved more popular abroad than he has within his American um, homeland is that the character is not identifiably or explicitly American in the way that characters like Superman or Batman or indeed Captain America are. He's a kind of uh, he's almost like a blank slate that, that readers in these three countries could project something of themselves and something of their own sense of national identity onto. The fact that you know, he lived in this kind of hybrid, you know, Afro, what Lee Fort called an Afro-Asian environment. Some of the stories could be set in parts of the world which looked a bit like India. Some of them could be set in parts of the world which looked like the Arabian Peninsula. Some of them could be set in parts of the world which look like sub-Saharan Africa. Lee Falk, I think, very cleverly and very deliberately blurred the kind of geographic boundaries of the Phantom's fictional setting uh, for many years. And I think that flexibility, um, that kind of what I call the sort of, you know, mysterious geography of the Phantom, of the Phantom and his world, allowed readers to think, oh, this is, you know, an Australian comic strip, or this could be a Swedish comic strip, or this could be an Indian comic strip, because not only did they identify with the characters because, you know, he could his adventures could easily take place in deserts or rainforests of tropical Australia, or, you know, in the sort of steamy, you know, subtropical regions of India. But the Phantom himself was very much a kind of... Uh, sort of a, a chivalrous, chivalrous, you know, uh, storybook character. He was noble. Uh, he was incorruptible. He was strong. He had, you know, superior strength to other men, but he wasn't superhuman. Um, he had, a, you know, an unshakable moral compass. He embodied, I think, in many ways, the kind of values that readers in all those three countries thought that they as a people themselves embodied. He was a reflection of their kind of national psyche. Strange as that may sound, but um, I think the fact that the, the character was a kind of almost superheroic everyman, you know, readers could say, you know, I, I can't be bitten by a radioactive spider like Spider-Man. I can't be an orphan, you know, from another world like Superman. But, you know, if I tried my best, if I lived a decent life, if I, you know, adhered to my own moral values, I could be someone like the Phantom. Uh, I think it's important to, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge the kind of moral appeal of the character. And, and I think that's why the Phantom was able to escape so much of the anti-comic uh, furor, particularly in Australia, uh, and even to some degree in India and Sweden as well, because he was seen as a moral and virtuous character. And I think a lot of readers who, you know, coming to adolescence and the adulthood in the 1970s and 1980s, you know, those who might branch out into experimental filmmaking or visual arts uh, frequently adopted and appropriated and interpreted the Phantom uh, or Phantom in Sweden in very unique ways. And I think that kind of cultural appropriation is a further reflection of the character's, you know, uh, symbolic stature in those three countries as well. Right. And so and, and that sort of leads into your next chapter, which and I think it's important to note that throughout your book, you have um, quotes from fans and people who read The Phantom and, and from the sort of survey that you did. But you really focus on those fans in that chapter seven. And so can you talk a bit more about that, what you do in chapter seven, if and maybe a little bit about your a questionnaire survey um, that you, to get information and to get some of this data from the fans? Absolutely. One of the things I was very keen to do from the outset when I started researching this topic for my thesis uh, was to actually hear from 
readers of The Phantom in Australia, India and Sweden, I wanted to hear firsthand from those readers why they liked The Phantom and why they thought The Phantom enjoyed such enduring popularity in their countries uh, because it's one thing to sort of measure the success of a comic strip serial like The Phantom by looking at the number of newspaper that it appears in by looking at the circulation figures of domestically published phantom comic books in, in foreign countries. That will give you some kind of you know, empirical measure of characters' popularity, but it doesn't uh, tell us why that particular character sees the imagination of readers in those three countries. Um, and you, you, can only, you can only speculate so much about the character's appeal by engaging in textual analysis of the stories themselves. And that's something I do try and do as well in my book. Um, but I was particularly keen to hear from fans of the Phantom themselves. So what I did was I actually set up an online survey, which consisted of over two dozen questions, uh, which I promoted actively online through a blog I'd set up specifically for this purpose. And I actually, and this is a particularly enjoyable thing for me, I actually got a lot of support from Phantom fan websites and blogs and message boards uh, in all three countries who were very keen to promote the survey and encourage members of their, their online communities to take part in the survey. I think there was a, a genuine sense of um, joy and gratification amongst Phantom fans that, you know, someone like me, an academic outsider, was taking, you know, a very serious interest in, in their favourite comic strip hero. Um, so it was very gratifying, um, the response I got. I received something like nearly 600 uh, completed survey responses from readers in all three countries. Um, I got the most response, I think, in descending order from Australia, Sweden and India. Um, I remember at the time when I was developing the survey, I thought, you know, if I get something like, you know, a couple of dozen, maybe a hundred responses, you know, that would be considered a good result. So to get as many as I did was immensely gratifying. And the lovely thing about the survey was that people would share uh, their memories of the Phantom, which were often connected with, you know, quite personal and emotional experiences. You know, one reader from Australia said he really identified with stories where um, it showed the transition from one generation of the Phantom to the next, when the, the, the oldest son would adopt the, the mantle of the Phantom after the death of their father. You know, one Australian reader said, these stories resonated with me when I first started reading the Phantom because my, my own father had died not that long ago. So there was a kind of an emotional um, connection there with the stories. Um, some readers you know, from Sweden would say that Parents were very against comic books um, and they would ban them from the house, except for Phantom Man, because he was seen as a positive role model. Uh, and that, you know, Swedish families, when they would go to their, you know, lakeside or, or coastal holiday houses, it was not uncommon to, you know, find the, the living rooms littered with, you know, old copies of the Phantom and comic magazine for them to read, you know, as a pastime. Reading the Phantom was a, a shared family activity, you know, between children and their parents as well. Um, I think the other thing that, that really struck me was, you know, the number of women, the relatively high number of women who took part in the survey and who said that they identified with the Phantom. I remember uh, one Australian-born woman who'd grown up in New Guinea, which is to the north of Australia. It's, you know, a tropical um, archipelago. Uh, she said, you know, I, I always used to imagine myself being the Phantom charging through the rainforests of New Guinea, ride a white horse, you know, fighting bad guys and, and pirates and smugglers and that sort of thing. So it's interesting, you know, how on the different levels that readers in those three countries could identify with the Phantom, you know, well beyond just the, the visceral enjoyment of, you know, a, a thrilling adventure story as well. And what, what I did in this particular chapter of the book was tease out the reasons why 
uh, readers from these three countries like the Phantom? Um, you know, uh, how were they first exposed to the character? Most of them, you know, read the character in comic book magazines, but others might come at it from a different angle. They might might have first seen the 1996 feature film of the Phantom starring Billy Zane, or they might have first seen the Phantom in the 1980s animated cartoon series Defenders of the Earth, which starred Mandrake the Magician, the Phantom, and Flash Gordon, uh, all characters owned by King Feature Syndicate. So I was interested in how they were first exposed to the Phantom, um, why they particularly liked the character, but I was also interested in why some fans, you know, no longer read the Phantom as well. And it was interesting that the number of former fans of the Phantom who actually, you know, time to participate in my online survey, clearly the, the characters still hold some sort of nostalgic appeal for them, but often they would say, you know, look, you know, adult life got in the way, you know, I, I went back to higher, higher studies, you know, I started work, you know, began a family, you know, the sort of pressures of adult life sort of encroached on their enjoyment of the Phantom, they didn't read them read the comic as much others you know just grew bored with the character some i think as they grew older and developed their own sort of critical faculties you know realized that that for them at least the the premise of the phantom you know a kind of white costumed overlord figure who's a self-appointed protector of a jungle domain they found politically problematic as well um they, they found they could not enjoy the comic in good conscience they felt uneasy reading the comic because of the you know troublesome racial politics which underscored the premise of the phantom even though lee fork and many of his swedish counterparts went to great lengths to really downplay that aspect of the comic strip over many decades. Um, it still proved um, to be a point of contention for some readers. Um, one of my favourite responses, though, was um, uh, one one reader, I can't remember if it was from Sweden or India, said they stopped reading The Phantom because they got their motorbike licence and they discovered women with loose morals. <laughs> <laughs> So I think the Phantom obviously would struggle to compete with such um, alternate attractions. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you, so you have the, you know, you sort of tease that out and then your final chapter before your conclusion is sort of who you title it, who owns the Phantom, right? And you talk and you mentioned some of this going on to sort of the digital sites and that kind of thing. But can you sort of talk about then where the fandom is at now and sort of what you have found about the fandom and the changing, you know, how the fan identity has sort of changed and media has changed and sort of consuming the fandom has changed. Sure. I think um, one thing that strikes me is just how resilient the fandom has been. Uh, and I think the character's continued existence owes a great deal to its persistent uh, international popularity. Um, by the early 2000s, I think it, the Phantom was only appearing in a handful of American newspapers, and there was there hadn't been a mass market newsstand Phantom comic book in America since the late 1970s. But I think the reason the strip continues to be produced in America and why the um, comic books continue to appear in Sweden, Australia, and India is, is largely because of the character's international popularity. I think fans, Phantom fans, um, quite quite often aren't necessarily comic book fans per se, but they are fans of the Phantom. And uh, with the sort of advent of online media, you know, blogs and websites and message boards. Um, in the absence of any sort of formally uh, recognised or formally licensed Phantom fan clubs, a lot of fans in those countries have taken to the internet to 
fair. Um, their encyclopedic knowledge of the character and the character's publishing histories in their respective countries. Um, in Australia, there was a really good website which ran for over a decade called The Deep Wood, uh, which took its name from the Phantom's fictional home, um, which became a kind of international focal point for um, you know, understanding the, the very complex international publishing history of the Phantom comic strip and comic magazine. Uh, and that, that's been, I guess, supplanted to a large extent by the formation of the Scandinavian chapter of the Phantom Fan Club in Sweden, which caters to um, Scandinavian audiences and, and audiences in Australia and abroad as well. Um, and that has a very global outlook in terms of documenting the Phantom's publishing history there. In India, um, there's been a real uh, uptick in blogs and websites devoted to both the Phantom and to the original comic magazine which the Phantom appeared in called Indrajal Comics, which reprinted a lot of American comic strips. The Phantom was the most popular feature in Indrajal Comics um, for most of existence. But you'll see there's very much a kind of archival and historical and, and preservationist sort of um, um, kind of uh, outlook to many of these online ventures. They're very keen to record uh, and document and to archive the publication history of the Phantom in these countries. Um, in Australia, there's been a new, a relatively new website um, called Chronicle Chamber, which has podcast interviews with lots of people who are associated with the Phantom Media franchise in Australia and abroad as well. Um, so there's very much been this explosion of fan scholarship, of um, uh, fan activity devoted to the Phantom, but it's, it's I think, more historical and documentary in its focus than, say, the fan communities which spring up around other American superhero characters, which are much more catering to uh, the creation of fan fiction, fan artwork and, and tribute stories featuring the character. You don't perhaps get that same level of fan activity about the Phantom. It's very much more a kind of archival and historical interest there. So I suspect that that may change as, you know, a newer cohort of Phantom fans who are, you know, much more conversant with, you know, yourself digital media, you know, might embark on their own sort of, you know, um, homegrown, you know, sort of fan artwork and, and films and, you know, be it role-playing games or, or fan fiction. So I think we'll probably see a steady growth in that kind of fan activity as well. Right. And so we've been talking for a while. <laughs> so I don't know if there's any sort of last things you want to say about the Phantom or what you found or in, in your research. Look, uh, just to reiterate the point I, I just made, I think the thing that really impresses me about the Phantom is its enduring appeal and its persistent popularity. It, it has, you know, it's, it exists in a, in a very different media environment, the one which, you know, it was first originated back in the 1930s, you know, when, you know, newspapers are closing down, where comic book circulations, you know, are progressively declining. Um, you know, it, I think it's testimony to the enduring appeal of the character and also testimony to the willingness of many artists and writers um, working in Australia, in Sweden and in the United States who've helped reinvigorate and refashion, recreate Phantom uh, to to, I guess, reflect the sort of, you know, the, if you will, the zeitgeist of the early 21st century in a way that makes the character still relevant, uh, still appealing, yet still the, the fundamental core of the character's essence remains unchanged. And I think the beauty of the Phantom uh, dynasty um, we're seeing now readers are being prepared for the fact that the Phantom who eventually married Diana Palmer and they have two twin children um, a boy and a girl um, that their children are being 
confirmed, in essence, to take over the mantle of the Phantom when their father eventually dies, as he will no doubt die, you know, fighting evil. When that time comes, we don't know. But I think it's a kind of inbuilt capacity for regeneration in the Phantom, which, will, which can allow it to foreseeably, you know, exist for, for decades to come in a way that proves problematic for characters like Batman or Spider-Man or Superman who are so wedded to their original incarnation. Um, the Phantom has that kind of flexibility and I think it it, it offers you know, exciting dramatic possibilities for the writers and artists who chronicle his adventures um, now and into the future. And I think that reinvention, that process of regeneration can only serve the character well, and I think will continue to attract new readers well into this present century. So is there anything else that you're working on now that you want to talk about, or are you just sort of trying to get out there and promote your book, or is there any last things you want to? Look, I'm, I'm certainly um, you know trying to, to promote my book as well. Thanks again for letting me inviting me onto your podcast. Um, I am looking at other areas of um, research in popular print culture. Um, my problem is I'm, I'm easily fascinated by so many different things, um, and I, I'd like to explore further the history and development of the feature syndicate industry in the United States, which I think is, you know, an area which is, you know, uh, been badly neglected in a lot of media history, but I'm also interested in, um, you know, ongoing interest in the history of comic books in Australia, in, in the country of my birth, but I'm also interested in, you know, other forms of mass market literature, you know, say such as men's magazine and pulp fiction magazines as well. So I see a lot of commonality in my research interests, um, whether that it takes the path of, you know, comic strips and comic books or, you know, mass market literature and men's magazine. <laughs> well, Kevin, it's been wonderful talking with you and hearing about your book. Again, this was Kevin Patrick, the author of The Phantom Unmasked, America's First Superhero. Thanks, Kevin. 